0: Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. My first job on the Graduate Scheme at Nestle UK was as Assistant Brand Manager of Sunpat Peanut Butter. I can remember being gutted when I was told, as back then the only thing that mattered was if you got a placement on a brand that had a budget for TV advertising or not, and Peanut Butter did not. It was what was called back then a back-of-cupboard product, bought at the time by I think around 60% of British households, but rarely used by most of them. In the end, it ended up being a really great foundation for the rest of my career, as I got exposure to both the brand and private label P&L really early on, and as such, needed to understand the processes and costs that went into making peanut butter, as well as all the levers that drove in-store sales, but it certainly wasn't what was termed sexy. Since then, however, the nut butter category has changed utterly, and our guest today has been single-handedly responsible for much of that change. Pippa Murray founded Pippa Nut in 2015 out of a passion for running and a love of nut butters, but not being able to find exactly what she wanted on the market. The range is now sold in more than 5,000 stores and is the fastest growing nut butter in the UK. Last year, the company was named Fast Track 100's One to Watch, and the Evening Standard has even named Pippa as one of London's most influential people. Here's our interview from earlier this week, where we discuss B Corp certification, innovation as a growth driver, and managing people when you've never done it before. Pippa Murray, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, absolute pleasure. It's a delight to talk to you this afternoon.
0: So Pippa, for our listeners out there who may not eat nut butter or who live in a country where you haven't yet scaled, tell us about Nut. what it is, what it looks like, where we might find it and how you came to launch the brand.
1: Yeah, so Nut is a UK brand. Um, it's an all-natural nut butter brand and we've got a range of all sorts of different flavors from a peanut butter right the way through to almond butters, and then slightly more experimental flavors like our coconut almond butter and currently our latest limited edition, which is pumpkin spice almond butter. Um, and yeah, the, the business was founded, as you mentioned, on my absolute love of running. And, you know, for me, I was always looking for more sort of nutritionally rich products to eat to kind of help me on my way whilst I was doing lots of marathons. and for me, it's been a, a product that I just got totally hooked on, and I guess came at it from a real consumer perspective, seeing that nearly every brand that I was shopping about seven years ago in UK supermarkets, which um, you know you listed one of them in your introduction, um, you know nearly every single one had either palm oil um, or just was really quite highly processed. And I felt, for me, as someone more sort of health conscious, it was certainly something that could be brought to the market something a bit more interesting so if you look at us now we're you know got a really playful brand we've got um, a really strong identity and it was created to kind of really disrupt the shelf and bring something fresh new and and importantly bringing sort of new people into the category so you know peanut butter and spreads is a really traditional space in store you know it isn't the most sexy part of the fixture or the supermarket more, more importantly um and for me that's what kind of got me excited I was like god this is you know, so open to have a more innovative brand enter this space. All the brands were about 30 years old, weren't doing anything, just, you know, doing the same old, same old. And I felt there was time to bring in something new and more fresh and ultimately appeal to that younger shopper who'd forgotten that that was a product that maybe they might like.
0: So innovation has played a really key role in driving growth for Pippenut, hasn't it? What were you seeing when you looked at the shelf? What did you feel was missing?
1: Well, at the time, it was it was literally just peanut butter. Um, There's sort of two key main brands on the shelf. Almond butter wasn't even really a thing in the UK about five years ago. And I remember being out in the US and seeing the shelves out there, and there were bays of things like almond butters and cashew butters and, and lots more different flavors, so things like um, maple peanut butters. And not necessarily completely revolutionary, but certainly playing on the fact that this product was, firstly delicious and actually secondly that actually that it can be natural and that was what i thought was really missing in this picture that there was like a natural healthier proposition on the shelf so yeah so it was sort of i guess a twofold thing which was like trying to reinvigorate something like peanut butter which ultimately people saw as like an americanized processed product, and then secondly introduced new things which were kind of up and coming and seriously on trend and still are like things like almond busses which are um yeah, like one of those sort of hot products that um, people eat because it's really healthy for you. So it's funny. I think you some, we sometimes speak to different people and some people still think that peanut butter is bad for you. And it's certainly that misconception that we're trying to kind of demystify.
0: So tell us about all the different skews in your range and, and how they're all different from what was out there already.
1: Sure. So, um, so like I said, all our products are natural, which means that there's no palm oil in any of our products at all. Um, so we've got what we call our core range, which is you know our, our peanut butter is smooth and crunchy, and likewise our smooth almond and smooth egg and crunchy almond butter. Um, but then we've got slightly more fun things like our, I've got a crunchy peanut, peanuts. Um, we've got a coconut almond, which was created when I was inspired by a macaroon. Um, you know that kind of perfect flavor pairing of almonds and coconut um we've we've got limited editions like I said we've got pumpkin spice but historically we've done things like a cherry bakewell almond butter we've done chocolate orange almond butters um yeah all sorts really and also we've just launched a new range of um, nut butter cups as well which are kind of like a a take on the the famous Reese's nut butter cups
0: and one of the other things that you guys have done really well is innovate around formats or sizes (laughs) of products haven't isn't it
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, I guess as a runner, I was used to eating lots of things like energy gels. um, And one of the things that inspired me off the back of that was actually we introduced the range of kind of what we call squeeze packs, which is essentially an on the go format, sort of 30 gram little pouch that you can squeeze either straight into your mouth or you can put it into your whatever snack that you're eating at, at any one time. Um, And it's just a really clean, healthy snack if you're wanting something that's really rich in protein um, but doesn't have any of the crap in it. So, um, yeah, and it was a totally new format to the UK. Again, it had been more prevalent in the US, um, but here in the UK, um, nobody had started to bring this product on.
0: And what about the big tubs? Because that's the one I buy. I really like your massive tubs of, of nut butters.
1: Yeah, so the kilo tubs was something that was already out in the market. But to be honest, I, I cannot believe just how big they are in terms of in terms of the revenue that they bring to our business. Now our kilo tubs make up almost half of our total sales. And um, which is and they've been out for a couple of years now, which is just crazy. And what we what we notice is that like they're really expandable as a product. So if people have peanut butter in their house, they tend to just eat and eat and eat it so really if they have a larger tub they'll just continue to eat and eat and eat it so they're incredibly popular format and now sort of entered into mainstream grocery because you're right I mean when I started up I was like who buys these things like a kilo of um, almond butter I mean that's mad but I think one of the things that as a brand that we've done really well is that we really drive usage occasions so part of the reasons why we've been so successful is that not only are we bringing new people into the kind of category but we're also encouraging people to think differently and eat our products in different ways. So, you know, we've actually got a cookbook out and it's got things like, you know, you can make protein balls, put it in smoothies, you can have it in porridge. And that's part of the reason why the trends around nutbusters in particular has been so booming in the UK.
0: You know, it's so funny because when I think back to my time at Nestle on Sunpat Peanut Butter, we weren't able to do all of these flavours and sizes. I mean, we did have a stripy sun-pat peanut butter, which was this gorgeous mix of stripy chocolate and smooth peanut butter that you could see through the glass jar. But we wouldn't have been able to drive growth for the category in the way in which you're doing it because we had huge capex spend on massive machines that needed to churn out the same thing in very large quantities. And I think this Is the key point here that small business is necessary for categories in terms of driving growth because they're able to come up with, with flavors and sizes that are at the very beginning only consumed by a small number of people, and that's what drives growth for retail buyers, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and, and, uh, and differentiation, I think, as well. Um, I think if you're trying to just do exactly the same as your competitor set, it's really difficult to get cut through, but you're totally right. I think, um, part of the challenge and you know, it's also will be the challenge as we start to scale is that you keep that nimble element of your innovation pipeline moving quickly and agile, Um, because you're right, the moment you start to invest in machinery and that's committed to a certain product and it costs money to change and it's not as efficient and you're all about price, you know, it's a bit of a race to the bottom at that stage, whereas we're all about how do we innovate and and bring in something new to this fixture and, and stand for something different and in doing so hold our price and hold the value within the brand.
0: So innovation is obviously really, really key. So how do you guys at Pippa Nut actually do innovation? I mean, maybe you could take the example of your new Nut Butter Cups and take us through um, how that came to be without giving away any company secrets or trade secrets, obviously.
1: Yeah, I mean, innovation is notoriously hard, to, I think, to land well. And I think regardless if you're a small or a, or a big brand, it you know, it's it's you don't always get it right. So I guess I, I would say that. I guess starting with our nut buzzers, I think sometimes people are surprised to hear that we literally do still, you know, make our products in the kitchen and that's where it all starts. And I do think it's got to come from a, a point of like inspiration, and blue sky thinking, and we still do all the development work with the blender that I used when I was starting up the business. So historically, I've sort of led on it and obviously did create the first kind of range of products that we've got out in the market. But I think things that I've learned since um, over the sort of past five years since we've been sort of trading is that. I think you do need to at some point bring that expertise and particularly when you start to move into quite technically complicated products like our nut butter cups which were really difficult you know integrating chocolate and nut butter into the into one is actually not as easy as it sounds I think it really helps making sure you've got someone who really is there as an expert in the the technical side of things as much as also the flavor and certainly I think for me one of the things that I learned most from is actually one one of the product ranges that just didn't work and and has really helped shape now the future of the brand. And I think, and I'll talk about that in a sec, but I think we, it's such a useful thing almost having something fail because you can then really kind of go into the, the details why it didn't work and kind of figure out therefore what you need to do next. And that range was a range of almond milks, which we had out a couple of years ago. Um, I think for me, it was just too early for the brand to be stretching into a completely new category like almond milks, you know, we were a couple of years old. And I think learning, certainly having the right team, right kind of budget to be able to do this sort of thing, although you can still be nimble and agile as a small business, there is still a relative amount of money that you need to make sure you've got to kind of push it into the market and make it a success. Uh, But I think the thing that was so fundamental and crucial and the learning that we found is that they just didn't work because that's not really what consumers really wanted from us. And having reflected back on it, what we stand for at Bipinat is that kind of permissible indulgence. Our nut butters really are that kind of treat that people put on their breakfast in the morning. And particularly some of our more exciting flavors, they are literally eaten out of the jar as a kind of treat that you might have at that 3 p.m. or um, sort of in the evening slump moment. And actually almond milks are just far too functional for us as a brand. And it was a really harsh learning, but you started to see it. And I remember even in the first few weeks of launching that product range and sampling in store and sort of seeing people's reaction to our almond milks versus what they did when they ate our peanut buses and it was so different people's reactions were much flatter less excited and and I think expected more from us from a flavor perspective and it was yeah
0: difficult. And the nut butter cups then how did you come up with that idea?
1: I think for us um again a learning that we made from our almond milks was that we realized that we wanted to make sure that it was as easy and kind of um, easy for consumers to be able to understand why we, why we might launch a certain product. And for us, the key thread that we wanted to ensure that ran through all our innovation and will do going forwards is having nut butter at the center and core of our brand. And, and I guess that's where we started. So we felt when looking at all the options out there on the market, well, where could we go if we were to keep that at the core of any product? And nut butter cups has, has, had been something kind of on my pad for a while. You know, I've seen sort of entrants come into the UK and see the popularity and actually the main competitor on the market is actually the fastest growing confectionery brand in the UK and sort of seeing their sort of growth and the excitement around that product, which I felt could do with having a more natural version to sit alongside it. felt like it was a natural opportunity for us as a sort of nut butter brand and given the strength we are in that category to make that leapfrog over. Um, so yeah, so that's where it started.
0: So where are the nut butter cups sold? Where can I get some?
1: Yeah, so we launched them about three weeks ago. So they're fresh off the production line. Um, and they're in sort of mainly London stores at the moment, but places like Boots, Whole Foods, Dicado, um, on Amazon, on our on- online shop as well. Um, and yeah, we've got some more retailers lined up for sort of next year. And
0: do you just buy one or do you buy a multi-pack or how does it work?
1: So it's a little, it's a count line skew. So um, you get two cups in a pack. Mm. Um, and we've got kind of a dark almond butter cup, and milk chocolate peanut butter cup and a dark chocolate peanut butter cup so some of them are vegan friendly they kind of kind of got half the sugar of the main competitor but fundamentally they are just totally delicious and they are very much on that indulgence spectrum
0: they sound like they'd be something that would be perfect with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee 100% yeah absolutely okay i'm looking forward to getting some Got the hint. So listen, this podcast tries to understand, you know, the different elements that make an insurgent brand like you guys more successful in driving growth than say big food brands are. And one of the keys to this seems to be a desire to do the right thing coming from a real place of authenticity rather than just simply a desire to respond to consumer needs or ensure your future market share or revenue. And during our prep call, you spoke to me a little bit about the journey you've been on in terms of certifying as a B Corp. Tell us a little bit about what this is, why you've done it, and what it means for you guys in the day-to-day running of the business.
1: Yeah, so for those of you that don't know what B Corp is and that are listening, B Corp's a business that balances both purpose and profit, and they look at it across a number of key areas. So they look at your governance structure, um, your workers, so your team and how you, um, the people within your business. They look at your work within the community, as well as also in, in an environment, and it's essentially using business as a force for good, that you can fundamentally make profit whilst also having a positive impact on people and planet. And I think for me as a business owner, you know, fundamentally I wanna have a business that I feel really proud of and that actually has our purpose um, at the absolute center of what we do. And what I love about B Corp is that not only does it give you a framework to be able to kind of stretch yourself and push yourself to do better as a business across those areas, but it also embeds it within your kind of governance structure. So you have to change your articles of association to make sure that both you as director of the business, but also your investors that are invested within the business or any other directors that are on your um, shareholders list are are also signing up to that commitment to ensure that profit is balanced with purpose. Wow! So it's a big commitment. And actually, it can be quite an intimidating thing for a startup to consider doing. But I actually think if you're going to do it do it now when you're smaller so that actually just embed it and it becomes you know the absolute status quo within your business
0: and what does that mean you know balancing profit with purpose what does that mean for you day to day
1: well i mean i guess it should come into every single decision making process that you're having so for take for example innovation so you know when we were looking at our nut bus cups obviously we could choose any any sort of chocolate suppliers that we like. Um, you know, there are lots out on the market, but we to specifically work with one called Luca Chocolate, which is an ethical uh, uh chocolate supplier that invests back into the communities that they work within. They're almost like a um they they're better than fair trade in the fact that they actually work with the communities to improve biodiversity within their communities in Colombia, um amongst a whole host of other things. Okay. So I think that's the sort of thing where, you know, you are making decisions but actually you're kind of looking at well how do we make sure from a kind of sourcing perspective we are choosing the right suppliers that have the right ethical standpoint that support our values
0: and that often costs more money doesn't it
1: and that will cost money so that's where the balancing act sort of starts to come into play so obviously you've got to balance the fact that you're still a business you've still got to make profit and function but you're you also need to balance the fact that you you want to do good um, and likewise, if you look at, say, your team, you might be looking at how you're structuring your bonus s- schemes throughout the business. Are you making sure people are fairly paid, and that like, you know there's not a gender pay gap? Not something that uh, we worry about, if not. But you know, these are sorts of considerations that you'll be taking. You'll be holding yourself accountable for as a B corp.
0: And so you mentioned at the beginning of this that the reason you're doing it is because you want to be proud of your business, right? there's also I'm sure part of it that you know you believe that your consumers want to buy into a business or buy into products that is run or delivered by a business that shares these kind of values would that be right
1: oh absolutely and I think smaller brands are actually put on a more of a microscope than say larger brands to be able to be accountable to your supply chain and and the environmental impact that you are having as a consumer goods and yeah I think You know, we appeal our demographic absolutely is that core millennial shopper and that particular shopper and those Gen Zs as well are heightened to making sure that they are picking brands that have ethics and strong ethics behind them. So, yeah, absolutely. I think there's an element of like if we don't do these things, if we don't um, interrogate our supply chain, then as a brand, we will become not relevant anymore. And that is so important, obviously, that we keep moving with the times. But I do think um, B Corp is a relatively um, low awareness in terms of consumers in generally. I mean, it's a global uh, certification. So when I say it's a business that I want to be proud of, I think that sort of is a bit more of a focus for me. Um, but also I think from a people perspective, you know, we've had people join the business because they, they valued the fact that we were a B Corp. And I think it has huge kudos and status within sort of the industry almost more than anything else.
0: So talk to me about people then, because I read in one of my um, preparation readings for our call that you had never managed people before you set up this business.
1: No, so I am a complete novice when it comes to food and drink and ultimately running a a business as well. So my background was a theatre producer and I set up the business when I was 24. So yeah, it was a really new thing for me having to run and manage a team let alone figure out what food and drink was and how that operated um so it's been probably my biggest learning curve is actually understanding both how to manage people well but also from a leadership perspective what kind of leader i am and and how do i want to lead because actually you know as i'm probably not on the extrovert spectrum i'm slightly more interested in lots of ways so it doesn't always necessarily it doesn't come naturally. Um, not to say that I don't enjoy it. Sure. Um, it's just you know, my style is probably different to probably those traditional um, Extrovert leaders that you always think. Yeah. yeah.
0: So how much time do you have to spend thinking about, you know, that side of things in, in a given week?
1: Well, I think it really varies in terms of, um, of what I am doing. Um, and it's not something that I always put lots of time aside because I think it's so scenario dependent. So it'll be as things come to you, to you. Um, but things that I've had to spend time, you know, carving out the time to do is, you know, getting things like coaching, I found has been incredibly valuable, particularly understanding and coming, being comfortable with how I am as a leader. So that's the sort of thing that I would focus on and, and maybe have like weekly, monthly sessions with a coach. And I had a coach for about a year just to kind of build my own confidence in this sort of spectrum. And I think ultimately, I think being a leader is, you have to be really self-aware and you have to know what the the things that your triggers, what are the things that get you excited and where do you get your energy from? So you can energize others. And I think that's as much about also becoming a leader, sort of just starting to be a bit more reflective about who you are, which I think is just self-awareness, isn't it really? Um, But certainly it's, yeah, like I said, it's a really new skill for me and sort of managing HR, I think you've just got to make sure you've got the right support around you and people and senior team that you can also lean on a bit to just sense check things or investors or mentors that you can ask, you know, what would you do in this scenario? Because like I said, I think you can only, you can't hypothesize what might come across your desk, but when you are in a scenario where you need to understand how to deal with something in the best possible way. It's about learning from other people that know more. Sure, sure. I think it's funny, isn't it? Because
0: when you imagine setting up a food business, you probably imagine innovation and packaging and brand Mm. and websites and, you know, sexy marketing plans. But actually, you know, the further on you go in your journey, the more time you spend building a team and then managing that team and then having to be the leading light in terms of behavior and values and energy. When people's energy slumps, you've got to be the one to pick it back up, don't you? And I wonder just how much people realize that at the beginning of their journey.
1: Absolutely not. I mean, maybe other people would and, and, and would have done, but I certainly never thought about that side of the business at all, which is bizarre, really. And I think that's sort of, I don't know why that was. I think I, to your point, very much focused on product and was really product centric and about getting it into the market. What, what was the marketing campaign? What was the brand going to look and feel like? But then when it comes to building a team, you suddenly have to think, right, well, who is it that I need now? And what's going to make that team both at the start but also in that scaling phase? And what I find interesting is that my role tends to change every sort of six to nine months as we bring new people into the business, suddenly elements of my job drop away and and new ones crop up. And that, that is, I think, what I think when I speak to other kind of startup founders is what keeps them going. It's like that constant movement, constant learning Um, for me that's that's the joy of running a business is that sort of a slight feeling of uncomfortability that actually you are quite comfortable with if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah and one of the things that I found interesting in my time in GU in France was that I didn't know any other female heads of businesses uh, certainly not in France so and the other thing about it was was that Anytime I went to see a buyer in Carrefour or Auchan or Monoprix, they were not used to having a female person across the table from them because mm. all of the Danone and the Nestle and the cheese guys were, were all blokes. It was just bloke city. What's it like nowadays being a woman in the food industry and being the head of a food company as a woman?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I still feel that I'm one of few rather than necessarily feeling really balanced. You know, a lot of my peers are, are men who run businesses. And whilst I don't necessarily think there is necessary disadvantages to being a female running a food and drink brand or consumer goods brand it's just different and I think I, I do remember they though sort of in the first in the early days the first few sort of manufacturers that I went to go and visit and I'm pretty sure that most of them kind of almost felt a bit sorry for me slash sort <laughs> of them thought of me as, as more of like their daughter than necessarily like a strong businesswoman. And I think one of the things that I found is that it it does become easier once you've got something to show and prove yourself. Whereas I think probably men are able to walk into a room and assert more authority without necessarily having to have that proof of the pudding. Isn't that terrible? Um, uh, Which is frustrating, but in some ways being a stubborn, determined person, um, it drives you harder, I think in in lots of ways. And, And you know what? I found it to some extent actually a real strength. So, I think being one of fewer um, people that run a business that's female and is is, is achieving high growth, you know, we get huge swathes of press, not just like product placement, but big kind of business pieces. Um, You know, I do lots of panels, talks, and I think in itself, people are more curious to kind of understand. And I think also raise profile of women in business, which is partly why I do so many talks is because I think people can't be what they can't see. So I think it's a kind of on us us as women to actually raise the profile as well um and 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 encourage more people more women to start businesses because there is a significant gap in in terms of those that have the confidence to do it so to be honest I think it's um yeah there are some some you know scenarios fundraising can be challenging as well particularly often it's quite a male-dominated um world that you go into in that scenario but I think it's I think more than anything it's about Proving yourself, and, and once you have sort of enough proof points, it's, it becomes a lot easier to be able to kind of hold your own in the room.
0: So, what would you say to people who hadn't worked in the food industry before and had come up with an idea and were thinking to themselves, "Oh, I really shouldn't do this because I don't have enough experience"? I mean, you didn't have any experience, and, and you've done it. So, what would you say to those people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always think it's been one of our like one of our biggest assets. Okay. Um, I never thought it would be that hard to start a food business. I was like, you know, you just make it, get it into some stores and you just go from there. And that naivety and kind of almost not knowing how hard it is to kind of win a grocery listing and grow one and how hard it is through retail, I I think I would have totally freaked myself out and just thought, you know, there's not a chance in hell this is going to work. And it just means that also you do endear people to you and also you ask really stupid, sometimes quite direct questions that maybe if you were a sort of savvy um, industry expert, you'd think, oh, there's no, you shouldn't ask that sort of thing. So true. Um, So I don't know. I I think it's been a real asset and it's almost like you don't feel as much fear to some extent because you don't know what you don't know. Um, Having said that, I think the funny thing now is that I think as the business is now bigger and I've got, a better understanding of it and also something more to lose now that we are bigger. Uh, You know, I actually, that naivety has come away and I certainly probably actually feel a bit more like um, there is more sort of stress and anxiety around that kind of the fact that I am now more experienced. But to be honest, I feel like most industries are a series of acronyms that once you get the hang of all the different SKUs, and you know different terminology terminology, volume sold on deal all all those sorts of different things I think once you get to grips with that you're you you kind of can talk the language and just to be to be frank like lag it a little bit (laughs) um have a few dodgy meetings and and learn through doing and I think that's generally what I look for when I look for team members is have they shown at some point in their career whether it's within a big or a small business that kind of aptitude to kind of stretch themselves and put themselves in at the deep end because I think it's really it's a really good thing to feel uncomfortable because it means that you're learning something new.
0: Sure. Yeah, no, I always feel that whenever I'm feeling uncomfortable, particularly if I'm being paid to do the job I'm doing, I'm thinking, crikey, I'm actually being paid to learn right now. And that's what that's what keeps me going through the discomfort, you know, because sometimes it's really hard, isn't it, to put pen to paper or or start writing a presentation when you're feeling so uncomfortable. But, Absolutely. If, but if you think about it instead of and uncom- in discomfort you think about it as learning i i totally agree that's that's the way i get through it
1: but and, and also i do think there is something about getting just good mentors around you so and i know you've interviewed my mentor um Brook brooke uh, prior to me and you know having someone that does have experience so that you know once you, you can run the business on a day-to-day basis but if every session you come across something that you don't know being able to email someone or pick up the phone and ask them a question about whatever's you're know, struggling with is just so valuable and I think if you don't know what you're doing if you're a solo founder and never run a business before just get a few mentors or friends in the industry that you can call up regularly because that's I think I don't think running a business is that complicated and then when you're substantial and big enough to be able to hire people then you start to bring in expertise as and when you need them um but in the early days it's pretty simple like almost you know it's it is get it into store and and work hard on selling it as hard as you can. But t- tell your story. And I think that people find that really engaging and interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So how many people are on your team now?
1: Um, so it's about 25 of us in the business now. Okay. Um, so this year has been a big step forward. We started with 12 at the start of the year. So we're almost double that now, um, which um, that's yeah, a, bit it's scary. a great size to be in. It is scary and exciting in the same breadth. And I think, you know, what I love about it is suddenly you have, you know, you have these conversations where you definitely know you're not the smartest person in the room and um, you start to build a senior. T- well, I've got now a really strong senior team around me who are like my peers, who I can also lean on and lean on quite heavily, which actually is means, particularly as a sole founder, um, you know, it's slightly less lonely than probably it was in the start where, where you are really having to make every single decision and it all completely sits on your, sol- on your shoulders.
0: I love that expression where, that you just said there, where, you know, you're realising you're not the most cleverest person in the room. Because yeah. I imagine if you're a business owner, you want to be in a room where you're not the cleverest person in the room, because otherwise, how the hell are you going to make it happen if you have to, can yeah. hold everybody's hand right
1: absolutely and i think particularly um in a small business you know when you bring expertise in the last thing they want is we to be sitting over their shoulders saying oh what are you doing there like no i think you should do it like this and mm. telling them what to do and i i 100 think the reason why people work for a startup is because they have complete autonomy sometimes probably too much autonomy to go out and sort and and solve those problems and and do it themselves in their own way and and that's why you you hope you are like Slightly the stupidest person in the room because if, if you're learning from them, it means that they're really bringing new stuff to your business that you've hired well because you know your your business is going to move forward as a result. Absolutely.
0: So, what's the vision, the big plan for Hip and Nut over the next five years?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've got, we've got big plans. I still feel like we're right at the beginning of the journey, to be honest. Um, for us, they so were really focused on the UK, so we've got a small amount of export business, but really. It, for me, and what I get excited about is building out a portfolio of products under the Pippinut brand in multiple different categories um, and really becoming known for a brand that's really shifting the perception that healthier options have to be boring and tasteless. Um, so we're focusing very much on growing our current distribution with our core range. Obviously, we've just entered into the snacking market too within the UK, so we'll be building both that business but also the portfolio of products around our snacking. And yeah, just generally, I guess, for us, from a brand awareness perspective, um, we did our first Above the Line campaign in September of this year, and that was so successful. It's done an amazing job for us as a brand. So we're taking those learnings and how can we keep driving awareness through kind of amplifying our voice whether that's through um, media such as that or other activation but really trying to not necessarily always be the biggest but certainly the most loved nut butter brand in the UK and
0: did you see an impact on sales from your above the line campaign
1: yeah so the funny thing is when I when we did it we were focused very much on it being an awareness campaign and I was you know holding my breath as to whether or not anything would happen from a race or sale but yeah we've seen a significant uplift in the t- sort of 12 week read that we've taken um post that campaign um which is phenomenal and the ad recall on that on the ads that we put out on the on the tubes has been really high at about forty seven percent which wow. is phenomenal considering that we had very little media budget so yeah it was hugely successful we basically had giant posters which had huge uh, real life photography squirrels on them um i'll have to send you a picture of it they were great and yeah so you'd be on the tube and you'd be staring at a huge squirrel looking right back at you and obviously it had our pack packs on them as well I've actually Um, seen
0: them I I googled it before our call and they're fabulous yeah they're really they're very very funny yeah really really funny well listen thank you so much for today really looking forward to seeing how you guys progress I'm sure you're going to go on to do amazing things and and it's really lovely to hear about your journey towards certification you
1: have certified as a B Corp already have you yeah, we're certified in the summer. Well, congratulations. I think that's wonderful.
0: And hopefully it'll inspire more food companies to and beverage companies to do the same. Someone said to me recently, you know, that they didn't think that consumers really cared about that kind of thing. And I mm. thought to myself, God, I, I just don't agree. So it's really lovely to see to see you investing time and energy into that. Thank you. So thanks so much, Pippa, and uh, wishing you all the very best.
1: Thank you so much. Speak soon.
0: Speak soon.